as has already been mentioned in both our announcements and our prayer, how thankful we each can be to assemble and to gather this Lord's Day morning. What a privilege and what an honor it is to be able to assemble in the very name of God for the express purpose of magnifying His will and His worship, in fact, to His name. As we come to this particular part of our worship service today to give some appreciation to a section of the blessed Word of God, I would invite you to give thought to that particular passage, that particular text found in Acts chapter 20, verse number 7. Brother Jonathan read that in our hearing just a moment ago, and as a part of that, I've entitled the lesson, Activities of the Church. I hope for the next few moments we can give some very careful attention to those marvelous and inspired words found in the concourse of this chapter. To do that, maybe these introductory thoughts would certainly be in order. As you know, as we continue our reading through the Scriptures, we've come to this section in the book of Acts. And among other things, we've discovered yet again how significant, how vital, how essential is the church. We find as Paul traveled to the places, he established congregations and found that a needful and very vital activity. Maybe as that statement in Ephesians 3.21 is again discovered and found, it rings in our hearing even at this moment. Unto Him be glory in the church, by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. The glory that is rightfully due to God is to be directed to Him only through the church. And therefore, it is not possible to substitute something for the church, to replace it with some other avenue or means. The church is the absolute purpose and means whereby glory to God is to be given and directed no wonder then we appreciate that the church is a vital part of the eternal purpose that we find in the very mind of God, Ephesians 3 verse 11. It is with that in mind I would invite you to launch into a consideration of some of the features at the bottom of that slide. Features surrounding a question. If the church is then the avenue through which glory to God is brought, what things is the church supposed to do? What activities should be descriptive of those works, those involvements in which the church finds itself? I think as we study this passage before us today and some of the other avenues of this chapter, we'll be ready to answer that with definitiveness and also with a great deal of comfort. Let's begin by setting the placement of the text, if we might. Acts chapter 20, in fact, is such that the following descriptive statements, it seems entirely fair to remind us of the place Paul was and the circumstances surrounding which he delivered these thoughts. You and I know that this chapter finds itself in that third missionary journey of Paul. The Apostle Paul had begun this journey from the city of Athens, or rather the city of Antioch, and as he ultimately had come to the placement... I've tried to summarize very briefly. He stayed for quite a while in the city of Ephesus, teaching and laboring into the power of the truth. He ultimately left that place, went all throughout a fair section of the place of Greece, the country you and I would call it so, and ultimately we notice he returned to the city of Troas. As he came back to Troas, we find the setting of the very text before us this morning. It says again, beginning in verse number 6 of Acts chapter 20. And we sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came unto them to Troas in five days, where we abode seven days. 
So as it was, we appreciate the fact that Paul himself was in a rather noted rush. He was in a hurry because it was his desire, according to verse 16, to be back in the city of Jerusalem to celebrate the Pentecost. And yet we find on this occasion that he, in five days' travel, came to Troas, but after arriving there, he stayed seven days. In that seven-day period, we ultimately notice in verse number 7, the passage read earlier, And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. Here we find the brethren in Troas were assembling, and as they did so, Paul met with them, and he was the preacher for that occasion. He proclaimed the blessed message of the unsearchable riches of Christ. As he did so, you and I remember that some unusual events, perhaps somewhat unusual at least, that was the scene when, of course, Eutychus fell asleep during the sermon, and he fell to his death from that third-story loft. Paul, of course, given the miraculous ability provided to him, he raised or he healed, if you please, that, that dead gentleman named Eutychus, raised him back to life. Paul then continued to preach some more, ultimately speaking all the way until well into the next day. Ultimately, as you and I appreciate some of the remaining statements, did you notice that while Paul met with these brethren, they celebrated the Lord's Supper, they, they observed that memorial, there was the very essence of preaching mentioned, highlighting the avenue of those two means. Later in that chapter, you notice that Paul ultimately, after he had left Troas, he came to the city of Miletus, a coastal town that was not too far at least from Ephesus. And given Paul's hurried desire to arrive again at Jerusalem, he, he beckoned the Ephesian elders to come to him and meet with him and chat with him. They did so according to verses 17 and following of this chapter. And as they came, what tremendous statements Paul shared with them. It was a very serious meeting. It was more serious than any common business meeting. Paul warned them. He challenged them. He asserted to them the great responsibility resting on their shoulders as elders. And not only that, we notice in verse 32, he said, Brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them that are sanctified. And you notice in the words following, Paul rapidly then had to proceed on his way. And what a tearful time it was when Paul cried and they cried because Paul had told them they'd never see his face again. Those elders loved Paul. They loved his faithfulness. They loved the degree to which he was true to the Word of God. And Paul also loved them. He loved the fact that they were ardent soldiers in the very army of God and there was much difficulty in the city of Ephesus. It is with that that the chapter races to its conclusion. You notice along the way, though, there are several things you and I can appreciate about the activities of the churches in the first century and by the principle of the Scripture that must be our activities today. What then are these activities of the church? What are some of them that you and I have discovered in the reading of this chapter? May I submit to you that we might well begin as follows. One of the first highlighted features of verse number 7, and no doubt it leapt off the page to all of us, was the fact that those brethren assembled. Verse 7 again begins by saying, When the disciples came together. 
there was something significant and something noteworthy about that assembly on the first day of the week. It may well be that some of those individuals had gathered during the week to eat a meal. It may have been the case they gathered for other purposes, but there was something very unique and very special about the assembly on the first day of the week. In fact, the Greek word that there is translated, come, to come together, literally means gathered together. It is to be noted then, isn't it, that a Christian is not able, as long as there are brethren around, to just stay to himself. He is supposed, by the power of God, to gather with the saints. He is supposed to gather together with them. You'll notice these saints of old in the city of Troas, they came together on the first day of the week. Isn't it true in light of that statement that some of these comments are then in order? Surely we would understand by virtue of this as well as the Corinthian passages in chapter 11 of that book that if it's the case that a person cannot come due to health problems or otherwise, that certainly is something God understands. But might we be quick to notice, if an individual can come together, God expects that person to do so. It is a sin not to do so. And you'll notice that it is not left to you and to me to proffer excuses. God knows very well the condition of our heart. And He knows whether it's a legitimate reason or whether it's merely an excuse. Romans 2 verses, verses 15 and following identify God knows very well the thrust of the heart and whether or not it is an, an excuse, E-X-C-U-S-E, or an accuse, A-C-C-U-S-E. That is to say, whether it is legitimate or whether it's not. You and I know well, then, we should think with seriousness and also a great deal of respect relative to these times of assembly. They really are genuinely important. So much so that I would invite you to look at some of these statements on that slide. Those of like precious faith are described in 2 Peter 1.1. And there is something very vital and essential about the commonality, the communion, the common fellowship, and the common edification that's possible. I encountered at one time a description like this. I think it's very appropriate. See what you think. There was a time, I'm told a true story, when a particular gentleman in Europe was not terribly faithful in his attendance at the services. And so the preacher visited him in his home on one occasion. It was a, a winter day, and there was a fire blazing in the fireplace. The coals that were there were very hot, carefully so. The preacher, without saying a word, simply took one of the coals and set it off to itself. In a matter of moments, it was no longer glowing. A few moments later, it virtually was dead and cold. The gentleman got the message. As long as that coal was together with all the others, it burned brightly. There was a commonality in the nature of its benefit and its activity, but left to itself, it died. There's much to be said about the assemblies of the church in that regard. When you and I gather with the saints, there's a common encouragement. We see faithful men and women, boys and girls, who are striving for that golden strand of heaven. When I choose to stay home, I'm surrounded by the filth of this world. I'm surrounded by the activities of the devil that tend to crush my spirituality, not encourage it. And so how sorely critical it is to observe 
that commandment of Hebrews 10.25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. As the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. There were those in that particular arena that were tending not to come. Notice the Hebrew writer said, as the manner of some is. There were some that were not coming as they should. The Hebrew writer said, don't forsake the assemblies. Although there are some doing it. Notice as you see the day approaching, our desire ought to be to exhort one another, to encourage one another. In fact, to provide a mutual encouragement of edification. These assemblies, among other things, accomplish that end. I realize that we first and foremost magnify and exalt God and strive to worship Him in spirit and in truth. But isn't it true that we do teach and admonish each other? Colossians 3.16 It's true that in these assemblies we edify and encourage. 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 11 to 14 and if we purposefully ignore them, absenting ourselves from those services, we're violating all those commandments. May we say, then, as that particular statement comes to its conclusion, that slide, isn't it interesting to notice this ancient city in Troas? The brethren came together. We might then ask the questions, where do you intend to be at 5.30 tonight? Where do you intend to be at 7 o'clock Wednesday evening? Have you already made plans to be somewhere else? Ball game, bowling, golf, whatever the case may be. May I say our God is keeping tabs. And He knows very well whose heart is in their service. Jesus did say, didn't He, in Matthew 6, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. May I say that as you and I think about this text, this Acts 20 verse 7, it highlights yet again the vitality, the importance, the needfulness of the assemblies. They really are an anchor that helps us to keep anchored to that which is the most important thing in this life, faithfulness to God. I hope that we each will highlight these assemblies on our calendars, if, even if not literally, at least in the calendar of our mind, and make sure that we highlight them with the essence of importance that really is their nature. Isn't it true that as you think about that ancient church in Troas, that slide ending perhaps even brings us to another one. What else did that church do? You notice that we've already made a direct application. Just like they met, so too you and I strive to meet and do so as would be pleasing unto God. You'll notice later in the chapter, though, they of course did some additional things. Let's highlight them as well. Later, as we discover the events of this chapter, there are two other verses I would call to your attention. When Paul met with those elders from the church at Ephesus, we find some things descriptive of the activities of the Ephesian church. Verse number 20 reads like this, And how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house. And then verse 27, For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. As Paul with such earnestness spoke to those Ephesian elders, he quickly commented them that while he was with them in the city of Ephesus, while he labored there, preaching there, teaching there, working there, he commented that in verse number 20, I kept back nothing that was profitable. 
And then in verse 27, he went on to say that I, that particular verse tells us, have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. May I say that that too is a powerful premise that must be descriptive of any church that's faithful unto the Lord even today. I would ask you to develop that thought like this. Every bit of God's Word is significant and every bit of it is important. Aren't we told many times in the Word of God that very truth and that very thing? All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God might be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead that is appearing in His kingdom? Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned into fables. That reading carries us through 2 Timothy 3.16 to 2 Timothy 4, verse 4. As you've listened to those inspired words, Paul said, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That identifies the fact, the Greek word literally is theonoustos. Theos is God. Noustos is breathed. It's literally breathed of God. This word is not mine. It is not yours. It's God's. It's breathed by Him, provided by Him, set forth by Him. And you notice that very, very statement identifies it is for your maturation in mine, your maturity in mine, that you and I might be perfect. No wonder then as we hear again Paul say, Brethren, you in Ephesus know I shun not to declare all the counsel of God. There were subjects and there were topics and there were messages that the Ephesian church needed to hear. And while he was there, Paul didn't mind preaching it. He preached it in love, he preached it in truth, but he preached in directness, didn't he? No wonder these comments perhaps bring for us the next set of ideas. Jesus said in John 17, 17, Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. Today, you and I recognize the church is the pillar and ground of the truth, 1 Timothy 3.15. And hence, we hear it Pippin should ever desire and demand it to be so, that the truth is the sole thrust and effort of that which we desire to be preached. We demand it of our preachers. We demand it of our Bible school teachers. We demand it of every element and aspect of our service. No wonder then we appreciate what a glorious example Paul's words here were. I have preached all the counsel of God. Doesn't that suggest some of these next things? There are various and sundry issues that even in our day sometimes are labeled in ways that it's preferred not to hear much about them. It's preferred to kind of leave them on the periphery and speak of them rarely if at all. I would ask you to notice how God's Word challenges every one of us. He leaves none of us exempt from the nature and totality of His demands. What about those who might have an unloving, hateful disposition? God says you'd better change it. God comes to you and me thoroughly and says, Those who are hateful have committed murder. 1 John chapter 4, verses 15 and following. If thus I'm unloving, if I'm hateful to someone else, 
God, in fact, does not desire that kind of mentality and attribute to reside within me. Rather, you and I must even love those that are our enemies. Matthew 5, verses 44 and 45. What about to that individual who, in fact, has a tendency to be envious or jealous? Wishful to have what others have, so much so that wishful prompts him to be hateful, prompts him even to think what he ought not think, hurtful toward another. God says, you'd better change it. For you notice, envy and jealousy are regarded in Galatians 5, verses 19 and following, as the works of the flesh, and those guilty thereof will not inherit heaven. What about to those individuals who tend to stretch the truth, borrowing the modern terminology? Better off to call it lying. God says you'd better change it. You must work with effort in mind to strive to ever be a person given to the truth and do not allow cultural mandates to lead one to stretch or hide or conceal. Notice again, God doesn't leave any of us out. To continue down that listing, what about those who tend to be on the lazy side? Those who tend to shirk their responsibilities, whether in the home, in the church, or elsewhere. God says you better change it. For there is coming a day of judgment, isn't there? In which everything known in my life by God shall be brought forth in judgment. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it truly astounding to think about the thoroughness of that judgment? Consider yet another one. What about those who tend not to use their tongue as they should? They speak as they ought not on Monday and Tuesday, but all is well come Sunday morning. They never speak like that at the services. God says you better change it. For every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. Matthew 12, verses 36 and 7. Can't we see how that God's Word desires that you and I come daily to know, to appreciate and to implement these things that He has given us? I say all of that to bring us to the bottom of that slide. We were discussing this part about all of the counsel of God. That brings us directly then to some of these other matters on the next slide. You and I know it well that there are some hard topics in the Bible, hard subjects that sometimes men would prefer not to hear. Hard subjects that often are encouraged to be relegated to very rare, if ever, a part of a sermon. As you would think about some of those at the top of this slide, there are congregations for which there are individuals who, in fact, let it be known to the elders. You make sure the preacher knows not to preach on that. You make sure he understands that we don't want him to talk on that here. I'm thankful that there are congregations like Pippin where no such thing takes place. Where you and I love the truth and if it's in the Word of God, we want to hear it. We demand to hear it. Because we know I'd rather hear it now than to hear it on the Day of Judgment when it's too late to do anything about it. And so it is to preach all the counsel of God. Those hard subjects, whether it be those touching the end of time, those touching marriage, divorce, and remarriage, those touching other attributes of life that challenge you and I so often, we're thankful that God's Word has things to say about them. We know that the answers to all those hard problems are found in this book. Men don't have the answers, but God does. Isn't it true, then, perhaps in light of that, 
Some of these comments are then in order. It highlights, doesn't it, this particular effort and activity of the church. We sometimes call it evangelism. The proclamation, that word euangelion, the preaching of good news. The gospel is good news. And even if it touches these supposed hard subjects, it's still good news to know that God has answers and He has information. The work of evangelism is important into the church, isn't it? Just like it was to the church in Ephesus and just like it was to the other New Testament congregations. You and I notice that whether it be from this pulpit or whether it be the radio programs that we sponsor every Tuesday on WLIV and every first Sunday of the month on WHUB, whether it be the pamphlets, the website that we maintain, we desire the truth to be set forth. And thanks be unto God, the glory is directed to Him. We're thankful that there are those who've shown interest and they make use of those resources and those avenues. And there are individuals who have been brought nearer and closer to God because of it. How much could it be said that you and I have been impacted by all the counsel of God being proclaimed and preached? And we're thankful for those brethren that do this. As I mentioned, I think, at one point in the Bible study session this morning, that particular element in Avenue yesterday, where there was there in Murfreesboro, the East Main Congregation, an encouragement for preachers, for elders, for deacons, yea, for godly men to ever have a desire for all of the counsel of God to be proclaimed and, and presented. For it still is true that on that day of judgment, this is what's going to be utilized as a standard. John 12, 48 still says, With such power, Jesus Himself commented, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. May we then comment that in this regard to this second word, doesn't that highlight then that the services wherein the word of God is presented and proclaimed highlight for us a specialness it's somewhat sad then when there are individuals who look back on a passage like this one and look upon what did Paul preach and how long did he preach? Are you and I perturbed and overtly bothered when the services go two minutes too long? Does it cause us to writhe and wriggle in the pew when it goes three minutes too long? Brethren, Paul preached till midnight and then some. How long did this service last? We don't know when it started. But we know he preached till midnight, and then verse 11 says he preached much longer than that. This service may have lasted eight hours. Could you and I have stood it? Would we have been so uncomfortable, so upset, that we would long, long since have left and forgot about it? We should appreciate the fact that when the name of God is being magnified, when songs of the Lord are being sung in spirit and in truth, when prayers are being offered, surely... We can stay in five additional minutes. Surely we can do that without complaining and grumbling to the elders, to the preacher or others. We understand the fact that these were people whose heart was dedicated to the Lord and they first had given themselves to Him, 2 Corinthians 8, 5. And in so doing, it wasn't any problem, apparently. Sadly, Eutychus now fell asleep. But it's to be noted, even after Paul raised him, he preached to them some more. There was more that he wanted them to hear and more that they needed to understand. These activities of the church perhaps bring us to one final one. 
You'll notice as we arrive later in chapter number 20, one of the last things that Paul stated to these, these Ephesian elders was this. And you and I know that often the last words that someone says are to be regarded as some of the most significant, some of the most memorable. Notice verse number 35. I have showed you all things, how that so laboring ye ought to support the weak and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how He said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. You'll notice that so far the assemblies have been highlighted as the brethren met in verse 7. And we've now most recently looked at that feature concerning all the counsel of God and the work of evangelism. Notice in verse number 35, we have now an emphasis upon what you and I might recognize as benevolence or something attached to it. I have showed you all things, how that so laboring you ought to support the weak. There are those that are weak. There are those that are needy. There are those that are in difficult circumstances physically. Paul admonished those elders in Ephesus, you be willing to support them and in fact carry out that support. Support the weak. You might notice he even used the word laboring in light of preparation for that event. You are able to work with your hands and make ready so that when the need arises, you can offer support and encouragement and help to them in a physical way. You'll notice those comments bring us to observations like these. The Word of God seems so filled with an attribute of reminding us of the importance of that. That good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, though the other two had passed by offering no aid, it was the Samaritan who helped that poor beaten man. Did Jesus close that by saying, Go and do thou likewise? When that lawyer asked, So who is my neighbor? Jesus answered it. And he ended that parable by saying, You go and do likewise. May you and I appreciate that same principle and message reverberates with us today. You could also tell, among other things, that the church then has a duty and obligation to offer assistance to those in physical need. Galatians 6, verses 9 and 10 speak of, As it is within your power, do good to all men, especially though to those of the household of faith. Aren't we reminded as we think about that attribute and avenue? Surely we also understand that there are those that are spiritually weak. There are those who have gone astray. Though once faithful they were, they no longer are. And it's our humble desire that they come to their senses and do so with urgency. As you think about passages like this one, to support the weak, no wonder verses like those at the bottom might well be mentioned. Those that are weak in the faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations, Romans 14.1. Galatians 6, verse number 1, Brethren, if any of you be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. No wonder you and I realize the church has works that quite frankly can be summarized in some of the basic statements we have studied and learned this morning. As you close that slide and we come near the close of our lesson, we can see the assemblies of the church are important. The attributes of evangelism, very, very important. The considerations of benevolence, also important. The church is not simply some social organization. 
it's not a governmental agency charged with those things that our government would assert to be the case. The church has its works laid out for us in the Word of God. Those works include the things you and I have studied today. May we look upon the assemblies with vital interest, ever seeking to encourage their productive nature to ourselves and others. Furthermore, may we appreciate the works of evangelism as the Word of God is proclaimed in truth and lift up the hands of those that do it. May we also appreciate evangelism as it is extended in ways like benevolence and also even characteristics of edification. I hope this morning as we have been reminded about the church in Ephesus and the church in Troas, we have a pattern setting forth activities for us to consider. This very day, if you are not a member of the body of Christ, not a member of the church, not one who's had your sins washed away in baptism, don't remain in that lost state. Don't remain in that state far removed from the salvation offered through the blood of Christ. You must believe Jesus with all of your heart to be the Son of God. Repent of the sins in your life. Confess the name of Jesus as your Savior and be baptized. Those things are commanded for us in the New Testament. And as we think about the simplicity of them, may we say that once a person gives attendance to them, that person is added by the Lord to the church of Christ. That person can then live faithfully until death and recognize the home in heaven promised to the faithful. If you've stumbled and fallen along the way, though once faithful you were, you no longer are, if you need to come back to your first love, the Bible also gives us a certain pattern. You are commanded to first believe your state of being lost. You must then repent of those sins you've committed since you last stood faithful. You must confess them before the Lord, according to 1 John 1, verses 7 through 10. Now, you need not be rebaptized, but upon your petition and prayer with faithful brethren to God, borrowing the pattern of Acts chapter 8, you can be forgiven and put back on the right fold of safety. Today, if we could help anybody, we pray that you would in fact respond and do so at once while together we stand and while we sing.